There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to Nina Champion, director of the Criminal Justice Alliance, which forms a network of 160 organisations working towards a fair and effective criminal justice system. Nina shares how the CJA works with their member organisations to break down silos and build understanding of the justice system as a whole. I'm Nina Champion. I'm the director of the Criminal Justice Alliance. And Nina, can you tell me what the Criminal Justice Alliance is and what it does? We're an alliance of over 160 organisations working right across the criminal justice system. So we've got members working um, in prevention, with policing, with sort of courts and the legal profession and access to justice. We've got members working in prisons and probation. Um, And we've also got members working with victim services and restorative justice. Um, And some of our members also working in those kind of broader areas, for example, around mental health, around substance misuse, um, you know, around equalities and race equality, for example. So we've got a really kind of broad mix of organisations working right across the system. But the common thread is that they all want to see a fairer and more effective criminal justice system. Um, And so we work with our members to try and sort of harness their expertise that they've got working on, on the ground, doing research, and try to sort of influence government policy and practice for that fairer and more effective criminal justice system. Okay, so two questions really. How do people qualify to become a member of the Alliance and and what sort of benefits might they see from being part of it? Yeah, so to be a member of the Criminal Justice Alliance, um, they have to be a non-profit organisation. So that can be um, a charity or, or a social enterprise, but it could also be a staff association, it could be a research body, Um, It could be a think tank. Um, So we've got quite a broad um, set of criteria. Um, And the main one really is, as I said, to actually, you know, that they want to see a fairer and more effective criminal justice system. Um, And, you know, the benefit really of being a member of the Criminal Justice Alliance is we have a lot of small members as well who don't have, for example, a policy team or a research team, but they have got huge amounts of expertise and experience from their frontline work that they're doing. Um, but they don't have that dedicated team in order to sort of feed up uh, to policymakers and to officials or to police and crime commissioners um, their expertise from the front line. So we try and do that on their behalf. OK, I see. So you can sort of distill all this information that's coming, basically like a massive intelligence gathering exercise, I imagine. <laughs> and then you kind of like compile it, distill it and put it um, into a narrative that is helpful to affect policy and legislation. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we did that in two ways. One in terms of reactive things. So as you know, there'll be consultations that the government will put out or that select committees will put out um, on different topics. So we'll bring together groups of members that are working in that area to have focus groups, to have roundtable discussions, to you get their sort of ideas and their feed in. So we co-produce everything from, from our members. So they'll, they'll be the ones that give us the good practice examples, will tell us what the barriers are that they're experiencing around that particular topic. And we'll formulate that into a response. We'll send it round as a draft to those members that have been involved in um, you know, giving us their, um, you know, sharing their expertise. Um, and then we'll draft something that they're happy with. And then we'll send that um, in response to the consultations. But we also do proactive work as well. So we have a series of kind of cross-cutting systemic themes that we work on throughout the years, aside from what's happening more broadly, to think about changing the culture, thinking about kind of transformative long-term change in criminal justice. And we also have expert groups working on those sorts of issues as well. We also have quarterly member meetings. So this gives our members an opportunity to hear from keynote speakers. So often sort of quite a high profile person that could be, we've had the new chief inspector of prisons, for example, we've had victims commissioner, we've had uh, police and crime commissioners, prisons minister. So they'll have a chance to sort of hear from them and to ask them questions. And we also have an expert panel and that could be made up of some of our member organisations sharing their work people with lived experience of the criminal justice system, practitioners, talking about a topic from some different perspectives and angles, might be an academic, um, really to kind of help people understand what's going on. Because the trouble is, I mean, I've worked in criminal justice for years and it's very siloed. You kind of tend to work in your bit. So I've worked, you know, for example, in prisons and you might really understand what's happening in prisons, but not really have a clue what's going on, you know, in the court system or in policing. And the idea of the Criminal Justice Alliance really is to try and help break down those silos to help everyone understand what's happening and where they fit in that big jigsaw yeah. puzzle that is the criminal justice system. Yeah. Do you think the silo side of things is sort of perpetuated by the fact that often the money comes down in silos and, you know, the different departments that don't really tend to talk to each other about things either? I mean, government departments. So do you think that there's a bit of work that needs to be done there to sort of, I know it's a big piece of work and God, I don't know who would do it or how it would be done, but to sort of try and crack that economic dysfunction that seems to underpin how everybody behaves and how they work and the competitive nature as well. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing, you know, sort of there's so many sort of silos and everyone's working their own bits and trying to get to sort of government departments sort of working together. But also we want to try and break down their silos by kind of finding the good practice that's happening in one area that might be useful in a different area as well. So, you know, um, we're looking at things, for example, about kind of uh, workforce um, as one of our kind of cross-cutting themes. And there might be something really good that prisons or probation are doing in terms of diversifying their workforce or, you know, doing some good training that the police could learn from or that other sections could learn from. So where possible, we try to sort of get good practice from different aspects of the criminal justice system so that that can be shared across ways. Um, but yeah, as you said, that there are so many sort of underlying causes and, and certainly kind of the funding is one aspect of that. But I think the more that we can do as an organisation to bring together our members who are working in those different silos so that they're sharing information and the more we can bring together different government departments, for example, the Home Office and the Ministry of Justice even, just as two, 
um, within our work and, and, and show them, you know, how they need to be working together better to make this um, the system better. And are people like the Home Office and the Ministry of Justice, probation, are they generally quite sort of open to you doing that? Or can they be sort of a little bit defensive, like, you know, we're doing it correctly and what do you know type of thing? Yeah, I mean, the civil service is so big, even, you know, as you know, sort of within the Ministry of Justice, there's different departments and connecting people sort of up, up together, you know, is sort of part of what we do. And I think they they do see the benefit, you know, no one department can solve this. Actually, criminal justice has, you know, roots in all sorts of different departments. You know, if you're thinking about people leaving prison, you know, you've got the Department of Work and Pensions, you've got, you know, the Ministry of Justice, you've got other, you know, housing to think about. So it's actually about trying to get people in the same room and and trying to break down those silos. And it's not an overnight task to do. <laughs> no. um, but I think no, that's one not. of the unique things as the CJA, you know, and also working in victim services as well. I mean, that's another area where there tends to be that silo between people working, you know, with people that have committed offences. And then you've got a group of organisations working with people who've um, been victims of crime. And actually often, you know, organisations, umbrella organisations, um, you know, we're not looking at that whole picture. And obviously there's crossover between victims and people who've committed offences. But there's also a need for, you know, a louder voice to you know, represent victims as well to make sure that they're getting the best outcomes that, that they can so so again that's one of the other ways that we try to to break down those silos and to work you know looking much broader across the criminal justice system okay and is research something that you can help with just in the sense that i know many charitable organizations no matter how big or small really struggle to get funding for research and actually to conduct the research um, because it can be really timely and resource heavy. Is that something you can help with or, or not particularly? Well, we do. I mean, we carry out our own kind of more light touch research. Um, so we're not in a sort of an academic body, but because we've got a, quite a few members who are research members, we've been working with them actually to understand how we can better support them and how they can work with our other members to join them up. Because often, you know, as you'll know, people will do sort of academics will do research and it might sit in a journal somewhere as a paper behind a paywall that people can't access and so the practitioners on the front line aren't able to understand you know don't have access to the research that's that's been going on and then on the flip side you've got research bodies who really need to want to speak to people with lived experience of the system or people working in that system in order to support their research but they don't necessarily have access to those organisations. And because they're both members of the CJA, what we're working towards now is how can we better join up our kind of research members and our non-research members together. And I'll give an example, actually, of, of where we've done that as well, where the Ministry of Justice, for example, or, or other bodies are doing research. So at the moment, there's a review going on about legal aid and access to legal aid and people's experiences of their lawyers you know, in police custody and in and in, in um, in courts. And so we did a call out amongst our members to say, you know, would they be happy, any of their service users, to take part in some research interviews being taken place about their experiences to feed into this this wider review. And we've done that on, on some a number of different issues. Okay. The breadth of work that you guys do is sort of pretty broad, but I just wanted to home in on the particular areas of work where you're looking at race and gender. And particularly, I'm interested in the fit for purpose and diverse workforce. So could you sort of give us a bit more of an overview of what work you're doing there? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I said, we try to kind of look, you know, in our proactive work at sort of themes or sort of thread, golden threads that run through the criminal justice system that might have an impact, whether it's policing or prisons or probation or victim services. And obviously one sort of common thread amongst them is is the workforce. You know, and that's how you achieve that kind of systemic change if you've got a fit for purpose and diverse workforce um, across those different strands. And so what we did last year, we, we look at it through two lenses, really, the workforce. One is around uh, race and one is around lived experience. And actually there's some, there's crossovers between between those. And we're trying to look at it in three ways. One, in terms of recruitment, but often that's where people stop. They just think about getting people in through the door into those roles and don't really then think about, well, what are people's experiences when they're actually in the role and kind of retaining people? Because we know actually, um, in particular, people from Black, Asian, minority backgrounds are more likely to then leave their roles after sort of getting in the door because it's not an inclusive workplace culture they can't they talked about in our roundtables you know not being able to bring their whole selves to work okay and are you talking about probation prisons and the police yeah so we held a big event last year and then various roundtables looking at these themes and we invited people whether it was through magistrates whether it was um, legal professionals whether it was probation officers prison officers because there's sort of real commonality of themes right across this so everyone's doing their own piece everyone you know i think people have realized particularly after the events of last summer just how important it is for us to have a racially diverse workforce but everyone's working on it in their own little silos and actually there is good practice happening and there is you know research taking place in these silos and we're trying to sort of pull that together and understand what are the common barriers and what are some of the solutions therefore that that might work across the piece here with criminal justice because you know it's not just you know we hear a lot about policing and recruitment but it's not just in policing it's around our probation officers around our judiciary it's around our legal professionals so it's sort of right across the piece and so what we're looking at is how what they're doing in terms of recruitment but also what they're doing in terms of retention so that experience of people when they actually get into the job but also about most importantly about progression because we know there tends to be a glass ceiling um, in terms, in particular, in terms of race as well, where at the more senior levels, you might have more people in delivery or lower level roles that are more ethnically diverse. But actually, as you get higher up the ranks, it, it becomes um, less diverse. And so it's about where are the blockers for those opportunities for progression um, and training and support to help people move up into those sort of leadership roles, into those influencing roles. And so that's how we've been looking at this right across different aspects of the criminal justice system. Okay. And have there been any themes that have come out yet? You talk about common barriers and solutions. And I was wondering whether, yeah, you know yet whether what the common barriers are and what some of the solutions might be. Yeah. I mean, I take one, for example, one really positive thing that a lot of people talked about in terms of an inclusive workplace culture was staff associations. So having staff associations um, whether that's the Black Police Association or uh, the Muslim Network for CPS lawyers, for example, these staff associations are absolutely critical in terms of providing that support network for people that are uh, in organisations. And they're also really critical in, in doing that kind of recruitment piece as well. However, one of the common barriers that we found from people was that they were expected to do extra work in terms of these staff associations on top of their day job and so I think you know that was one area where we thought actually there was this was really positive to have these associations but actually people's contributions to them really need to be valued properly and they need to be given the time to do that if that is something that they want to support 
Um, they need to have that as part of their their job, um, not as a sort of an extra on top of their their day job, you know, because it's it's everyone's responsibility to you know increase diversity, but yeah, you know, not just people from that um, from that background as well. So they need to be given the support to do that. So so that's sort of one area that was quite sort of a common theme across the different bits of the system. And have you seen whether there's a particular sort of service, whether it's police, prisons, probation, whatever, that are actually making good progress in this area because we tend to talk a lot don't we about the problems and I'm always trying to give a sort of positive spin where I can in the podcasts so are there sort of elements of good practice and reasons to be cheerful type of thing <laughs> I mean that one area that yeah that's that's done well on this is um the parole board actually and they they've made a real kind of effort in terms of their recruitment um and a lot of this is actually really about thinking about processes. And there's some really interesting work being done about thinking about recruitment, thinking about, you know, where do we go? You know, where do we go? How do we build our networks? How do we speak to people where they're at and have a real kind of thought about doing this in a sort of a really measured way and actually having some you know, um, accountability as well to ensure that, you know, that this is a real sort of focus. And it could be, you know, looking at um, where are the blockers? So, for example, you know, are there, could there be more buddies or people supporting them, you know, even in the lead up process to an application or to a promotion so that it doesn't have that subjective element uh, to it where bias can come into that process? So how can we remove bias? And there's some really interesting things being done, both in terms of whether it's assessments, whether it's interview processes and panels, um, you know, who's on the panel, who's deciding the criteria to sort of remove as many biases as possible from that system. Yeah, there's something that I never really realised until I got involved in recruitment and how you can subconsciously start recruiting in the image of yourself. Um, but another sort of funny story related to that is um, in the Ministry of Justice up on the Director General's corridor, where I've been a few times over the years, there's a picture of all the Director Generals or Head of the Prison Services uh, over the years. And I don't know how many pictures there are up there, but it is so funny because I realised that after I'd realised I was recruiting in the image of myself until I was stopped. And I saw that every single man was a white man. I think they all had glasses. And if, if they didn't all have glasses, they were all unbelievably similar. But there's one black man, I think. And now there's a woman, of course, in charge of the prison service. But it really, and now that I'm aware of it, I see other people doing it, and particularly chief executives, because they're usually in the role where they are recruiting. Um, and it's just a really weird thing that just happens. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you it, this is this happens all over and when i talk about criminal justice workforce we talk you know that also includes the voluntary sector you know because we are part of the the criminal justice workforce and there's some really interesting uh stuff that some of the charities are doing some of our members are doing in looking at their recruitment processes in looking at well, do we need a cv and a cover letter or actually should we just be putting out um some question you know some broad questions for people to answer as that first role as a sort of a way in do we need people to have degrees do we need you know sort of really looking at those recruitment sort of processes who's on the recruitment panel you know blind applications in terms of removing names and things so there's there's lots of you know real interest in this area so we're trying to sort of collate all that good stuff and and you know like these things it's always a, it's a work in progress you know no one I think has got you know the ideal way of working but if we can help to share where positive things are happening from different parts of the system I mean we know that there are there are kind of more fundamental blockers for example if you look at policing around 
they've done well in recruiting more Asian police officers, but less well in recruiting black police officers, in particular black women police officers. So it's also looking at that intersection of race um, and gender. And I think that needs, you know, looking at in more detail, because I think there's a real fundamental barrier there when it comes particularly around policing, where you've got a history of um, over-policing of communities, of disproportionality in the use of police powers, that is a real blocker, you know, in terms of that recruitment. And, and this is one of the things that we've been trying to talk about in our work focused on stop and search, is that actually, although um, that actually can have lots of these sort of ripple, negative ripple effects that make other things more difficult, whether that's you know, people less likely to come forward as victims and witnesses because they have less trust, trust and confidence in the police, which makes the police's job hard to actually solve crimes, or whether it's people that are then more less likely to want to, to join the police. Yeah, you can see how things, when you start tracking back and then you're sort of tracking back into the community and then maybe tracking back into schools and the experiences of racism that maybe children have experienced in schools, and then it comes back to that cross-departmental and not working in silos point, doesn't it? In the fact that this is about communities and health and housing and education. Yeah, so yeah, so there's lots of sort of blockers. So there are some specific ones in different areas, but like I said, we're trying to draw together that good practice and sort of share that. So we're going to be publishing a report on that at the end of this year, sort of drawing all that sort of good practice and um, you know new innovations and ideas. And some of it hasn't yet been researched as to how effective it is, but we want to sort of gather up where people are trying new trying new things and, and but I but I think what is really important is to understand that it's not just about the recruitment piece it's not just about ensuring that adverts you know are representative and, and that you draw this actually you've got to make sure that when people arrive that they feel like they can bring their whole selves to work that it's an inclusive workplace and that's a whole piece of work I think around developing cultural competence amongst the broader workforce as well, um, because there were some awful, you know, um, stories in the round tables we had of, you know, um, a, a woman a prison officer who was Muslim, you know, and some of her experiences amongst her colleagues. And I think particularly when you're looking in, you know, working in a prison, you know, you you want your colleagues to have your back. You need them to have your back and you need to have that, um, you know, for your own safety and, and for working as a team, because it really is that kind of team job. No one can do it by themselves. And if you feel like actually you're not being accepted by your colleagues or you're being, um, you know, whether it's direct or indirectly discriminated against or experiencing racism or microaggressions or other things through your work, that's not going to be, you know, a place that you want to work. And it's also then not going to be a place where you encourage others, you know, in your family, your friends, your networks to come and work if you've not had a good experience yourself. So I think there's a whole piece of work to be done, you know, not just focusing on bringing people in, but actually on kind of workforces and, and their cultures. Yeah, because also if you think if that's how people are behaving with their peers and so-called equals, then how on earth will they be behaving with the prisoners? Yeah. And I think one of the saddest things, actually, that we've, we've sort of come across a bit in some of our work that we're doing is around the kind of dynamics of, um, of, of race and how that plays out. Say, for example, you know, in a prison where we've had um, we're doing some work around the independent monitoring boards and, and, and scrutiny looking at sort of race and gender. And one of our focus groups, one of uh, someone who had lived experience of being in prison as a black woman, had said that the black officers on the wing wouldn't talk to her. They would talk to her white friends and ask them because there was this perception 
that if you were to talk to someone from your same racial background, that there's some sort of collusion there, that something's going on that colleagues might think. And, and that's also what we heard from the staff themselves. So there's all these kind of different dynamics that have really got to be worked through. In any of the training for police officers, prison officers, whoever, do they have anything on race and culture and cultural disparity they do, but what we found is is that often it's a very kind of it, it can be online, it can be very tick box. Um, and what actually they really, really want and what where they have had access sometimes to types of training that as is led by people, you know, from different ethnic backgrounds that's not a tick boxing, that's not sitting at a computer ticking boxes and having a PowerPoint presentation, but is actually those sort of spaces where people are having actually uncomfortable conversations. These are difficult conversations. People are don't know what you know language to use. They're, they're, they can be uncomfortable. They're bringing their biases. This is quite an uncomfortable space. But in order to do it properly, you really need to have people in those spaces um, having those discussions, not just watching a PowerPoint or doing a sort of a tick box. And I think that's you know the feedback that we're getting across you know, different aspects of the criminal justice system is that equalities training and training around kind of race um, is is far too much of kind of a tick box and um, way of working rather than actually being the sort of discussions that you really need. And there's some absolutely brilliant, you know, uh, facilitators and trainers out there who are, you know, working in an ad hoc way with different police forces who recognise or, you know, prisons that recognise actually we need something different. We need something more bespoke. We might have a significant Muslim population in our prison, you know, in a women's prison, and they bring in, you know, one of our members, Muslim Women in Prison Project, to come and do some specific training or the Zaid Mubarak Trust. There are some great specialist organisations out there who, you know, have that, you know, training are able to kind of conduct just a much more memorable, actually. That's what you're going to... I don't think you're going to remember a PowerPoint presentation. No, exactly. And I think sometimes in training, um, having, you know, with my organisation, it's predominantly about training amongst other things, but it's sort of being in the room and letting things land and settle, seeing, reading the room and seeing people's reactions to some of the things that are being said. So, you know, I've been in rooms where trauma's being talked about and gender's being talked about. And some of the reactions from some people in the room, they can be really good or they can be horrific. And when it's horrific, I always say to any of the staff, my staff that are with us, listen, I know it makes everyone really angry because we think that's really not appropriate, but it does shine a light on the problem. And that is really useful because then when people say, oh, this doesn't exist, you're like, actually, it does because I see it in training all the time and even though you're right, it is particularly uncomfortable. It's it's the nonverbal cues, it's the body language, it's the banter, you know, the inappropriate banter sometimes. Um, and I think, you know, training can really move you. Um, I've often been moved to tears. And I think it's that sort of emotional wrangling you have to do with these difficult topic, topics. As you say, you just simply can't sit at a computer by yourself and answer the questions in the way that you know might be more appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is worrying at the moment. There was some training around um, sort of unconscious bias training. And there's because I think there's been a sense of, you know, whether this you know particular sort of training is um, is effective or not. And, you know, and I think, you know, it may or may not be because it's not delivered in the way that, you know, that it should be. But they've, you know, particularly in HMPBS, I know that they've removed that training. So it's around kind of well, what are you going to replace it with? There's a real need to to look at this now. And there are some fantastic organisations, as I said, 
you know, who've got this expertise, who, you know, are expert facilitators at holding these discussions, that ha- you know, having these uncomfortable conversations, moving people in a place where they're not, uh, you know, that they they can go on that own journey themselves to develop these, you know, environments. So there's a real need to kind of focus on that. And then, like I said, in terms of the progression piece as well, it's also about, you know, where do those biases that you talked about in recruitment also come in, in who gets, you know, we, we heard quite a lot in the roundtables about these sort of secondment opportunities that would come up. And often if they had a secondment opportunity, um, for example, in particular with, you know, the civil service use this, that gives you then a foot up and some more contacts to then get a, a more permanent role. So these are real kind of important aspects of the progression route are these secondments. But but who makes the decision about these secondments? Where's the transparency about actually a manager picking one of their staff to get this secondment opportunity? Um, and so there was a real kind of sense of a lack of transparency sometimes with, with who's getting those opportunities that can then help them progress up the ladder. So I think it's shining a spotlight um, on some of those different aspects so that people see because people aren't going to join a job I don't think unless they see people in their image like them you know sort of showing well that's what's possible I could reach you know I could move up into these levels if you're only seeing people you know at the low levels and you're seeing you know people that are white that are being progressed at a faster rate or getting opportunities that other people aren't again that's going to you know mean that people aren't going to stay in in that that career. Yeah, I see that all the time with my nine-year-old daughter. You know, when I'm reading stories to her about the girl that did something amazing and the girl that fought the battle and being married to a historian, uh, my husband's always very big on talking about female historical figures, which is quite a new thing, really, um, sad to say. But, you know, it's amazing because she wants to be like the other women. She doesn't want to be like the men and my son likes to talk about the boys you know it's it's kind of obvious when you say it like that um and then it's just a shame that we find it so difficult to sort of emulate this in our adult lives now and it has a real knock on just talking about women and and particularly thinking about policing you know we've been doing some work recently with the independent custody visitors association so they're volunteers that go into police custody to monitor you know people's treatment as detainees in, in police custody and we're particularly you know focusing on race and gender and so thinking about women in police custody um you know often there's actually just not even a woman in the building to enable them to carry out for example a strip search or a, or a search or even just to sort of ask them so i mean the independent custody visitors association they've done some really good work uh recently around female menstrual products you know in, in police custody because actually you know it, it makes sense to us that we would need sanitary pads and, and tampons but actually who's you know if you're a woman, you're not necessarily going to ask for it if it's, you know, if it's all men or men aren't necessarily going to do that. So there's a whole piece around how do we ensure everybody understands, you know, what women's specific needs are in, in police custody. But also how do we ensure that there is, you know, that greater kind of gender mix amongst um, custody based police officers to ensure yeah. that, that women. Are I mean, to be honest, I'd rather, you know, see something actually quite radically different in terms of. Um, you know, is police custody suitable environment for women at all, actually, in terms, you know, sort of, and, and to start actually thinking a bit more radically about how uh, trauma plays out? Well, exactly. When sort of most of the women we know who end up in police custody have usually suffered trauma at the hands of a man. And that's not to be down on men in any way at all. It's just a fact. So therefore, if you then are surrounded um, by men in a position of power, you know, 
that's not going to make anyone's day better. Not the woman's, not the staff that are there. You know, it just really inflames all the problems, doesn't it? And, you know, it's a really good point about the sort of menstrual problem and products that women might need. And also women need different products. And you don't really want to have to get into the detail of that. I wouldn't want to talk to any man about that kind of stuff. Yeah. So so we're sort of looking, you know, so it's sort of just been really interesting kind of, you know, just working through these different sort of issues and, um, and looking at options and one, you know, one area is around, you know, who is in that space and, and, and so the workforce and what training do they have? And if, it, you know, and even if it is a, a male officer or well, what training have they had about really understanding what, you know, the, the race and gender and religious needs of, um, of people being detained. And there's some really, you know, also we've you know, come up with some really great examples where, you know, custody suites are working with local specialist organisations to come and bring them in to to help understand these issues more to do some training um you know so there's some really positive examples you know of for example inviting a local imam from a mosque to come and actually kind of visit the police custody suite to say are we providing everything that we could be you know for muslims in custody whether it's it's ramadan or whether there's other you know sort of religious things you know come and have a look and come and see you know if there's more things that we can do so there's some definitely some really positive examples of people taking a proactive approach to equalities and to thinking about what does this look like? What more could we be doing? Um, but unfortunately, these are just a little pockets. So what we try and do is kind of shine a light on them and then look at mechanisms for saying, well, actually, these are things that should be done as a as a minimum. Actually, this is, you know, these should be standards that are, um, are replicated, you know, no matter what police custody suite or, or prison or, you know, the, or victim service that you go into. Absolutely. So again, we it's sort of a classic example of knowing what the problems are, generally, um, knowing what the solutions could be. But then it's the difficulty then, isn't it, of implementing the solutions. But, you know, because I always bang on about the fact that we know what the problems are. And a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, we know what the solutions are, which is good. But it's just making the action happen, really, isn't it? Yeah. And I just say, you know, one other thing on, on the workforce sort of point from where there has been some really positive um, moves as well or is starting to, to be some more positive progress is through this other lens that we're looking at it through in terms of lived experience. So people that have got and we use quite a broad definition of lived experience. So that could be people that, you know, have been in prison or got criminal convictions. It could be people with who've had a family member in prison or have been a victim of crime, supporting them into roles, you know, if they want to work in that sort of criminal justice sphere. Because often, um, so we published in 2019 a report called Change From Within, which really looked at all the barriers to their recruitment, retention and, and progression in the sector as well. And for example, if people want to go back into prisons to um, to deliver services, you know, if you've got a criminal conviction or you've been in, in prison, there are all these sort of vetting processes to go through. And that's fair enough. But actually, these processes are really opaque. Um, they can take a very long time. They're, very, they're at the discretion of, often of an in individual. There's often no appeal, formal appeal process. And you often don't get told you know, and actually at the launch of this event, you know, I always remember at the launch of our report on this, one of the guys who was, had supported us with, with the report said, you know, even though he'd been working in and out of various prisons for, I think, over a decade, that day he'd been rejected from working in a particular prison due to the vetting processes. And he'd been working in other places 
you know, and he, and he just sort of said, this is an absolute prime example. So I think there's sort of things around vetting that we really need to move on. But what has improved, and I think, you know, there are some examples. So the civil service, for example, have got this scheme called Going Forward Into Employment or Giphy. <laughs> they love an acronym. So it's um, supporting people. Um, you know, who've been in prison to work in any of the kind of civil service departments. But actually, out of all the departments, guess who had the the least success in um, supporting people into these roles? Well, it was MOJ and H, you know, Ministry of Justice and Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service. And, and we were sort of saying, well, actually, you should be the ones recruiting the most because, you know, this is about leading by example. If you're trying to say to other employers out in the, you know, in the community that you should be employing people, you know, who are, who've come out come out of prison or who who've got criminal convictions, you need to be doing the same yourself and actually kind of really leading by example. And so we worked with our lived experience expert group. So these are members with lived experience of the criminal justice system who work for or lead organisations that are one of our members. Um, we've been working with them and having meetings with the going forward to employment team, with the probation workforce team, everyone, you know, teams that are doing things around recruitment to really help them sort of understand what more could you do to remove the barriers and support that kind of pipeline of people and progression through into roles in the sector. And, um, and as a result, the going forward into employment scheme have actually started to now be less restrictive in their criteria because they were quite restrictive initially. It was only for the lowest sort of level opportunities within the civil service. So you couldn't come in at a, a higher level. There were certain blanket exceptions and rules in terms of particular offence types. Uh, it was only people that were just leaving prison rather than people that were on licence. So we've been working with them to try and think about how they could relax some of those criteria to open up more opportunities to people um, who might be on licence or who you know might want to come in at a, a higher level to give them opportunities. And that's starting to now sort of pay dividends, really, and, and more people coming through. So there's still a long way to go. But I think there's definitely willingness on the side of um, you know government departments and particularly MOJ and HMPPS to think about that. And we know the probation workforce strategy actually has a section in it that talks about we want to recruit probation officers that have criminal convictions that have been part of the system. So there's definitely some positive um, movement there. We just got to support, well, what does that look like? and hold them to account on that and, and to think, yeah. what does that look like? You mentioned a little bit earlier about your work around stop and search. So can you um, sort of elaborate a bit more on what the problems are there and what it is you're trying to sort of bring about? Yeah, so our, our, one of our kind of cross-cutting kind of work strands that we're looking at is around scrutiny and accountability within the criminal justice system. So, you know, what our members said is, you know, if there was better scrutiny and accountability, that would improve outcomes. And particularly, we look at this through kind of a race and a, and a gender lens. And of course, stop and search is one of those areas where we know is disproportionately used um, on black, Asian, minority, ethnic people. Um, and so what we did was sort of look at, well, what scrutiny goes on? Because there are, there are mechanisms for stop and search in terms of scrutinising the use of um, these police powers. They often happen at a community level, local volunteers who come together to, to meet with the police and go through literally kind of the receipts of, of different stop and searches. They might look at some body-worn video footage. They might look at some of the statistics about how many people and what ethnicities they were that had been stopped and searched. And do they have reasonable grounds for that search? Because, you know, this is where the, the bias can come in if there's not reasonable grounds. You know, what was the reason for the search? Was there a legitimate, you know, legal reason? 
And so these groups look at these searches and see whether there was reasonable grounds and highlight any concerns, whether it's about an individual officer or a trend that they notice happening over a broader amount of time. But what we found was, is when we actually kind of mapped this across the country, was that although there were some examples of of good practice and there were some um, groups that were really effectively scrutinising, actually that wasn't the case across the country. Um, we found that often, you know, up to one third of the chairs of these groups were the police themselves, so they weren't sufficiently independent. We found that some didn't get access to the data they needed, so many didn't have access to body-worn video to actually uh, to look at that. They might not have had the training and support needed because it's actually quite complicated. It's lots of statistics. It's lots of kind of grids. And I sort of look at them and I'm not a maths brain and kind of you know trying to work my way around different things. So, you know, they need to be given that support to enable them to be that kind of critical voice, to enable them to ask the right questions and to challenge in order to to improve um, outcomes. And so we found that there was a real need to have kind of, again, coming back to these kind of national standards rather than just in sort of certain areas. And as a result of publishing that report, we worked with the College of Policing to develop some new guidance. Um, and they were absolutely brilliant. And they've, you know, they've put into their new uh, sort of guidance a, a lot of the things that we talked about around representation, around access to data, around being able to influence change, around um, access to body-worn video, but we still weren't satisfied because that is still guidance. It's still not mandatory that uh, different polices, police forces have to use this. So recently, we've just launched a super complaint asking for a kind of a national body to oversee all these different community scrutiny mechanisms to ensure that they're all uh, using this, uh, sort of make this guidance mandatory to make sure that it's all really effective scrutiny that's going on. And also to have a national body that's independent to kind of look at the overarching trends across the country, because at the moment there's it's really difficult to do that because each police force as well collects data in different ways. But I always think sort of when, you know, it's difficult to get the data and there aren't these bodies, the sceptical side of me says, well, that's for a reason. And it might be because... Nobody wants to be shown to be either racist or doing things wrong. But of course, if we need and want change, and if we're going to get change, then you have to, as you say, it comes back to those uncomfortable conversations, uncomfortable realisations sometimes to say, well, we could be doing a lot better. And maybe I didn't realise I was behaving in a racist way, but just maybe I am. And, and I think this plays back into the institutional racist side of life as well doesn't it because yes we could we may or may not be racist ourselves but then the institution themselves how they gather data and this happens with gender as well right as you'll know um, often women are left out of the stats um you know there's a big cultural piece to do there on the culture of an organization and an institution isn't there so it's yeah it's not exactly an easy one to solve absolutely a national body would be a good start as long as the national body had the confidence and the power to be able to challenge because often you also see with these bodies well they should be holding people to account but often that doesn't happen either and that's it. And, you know, it's about having the right, you know, the teeth to actually do something, you know, around this and to highlight these concerns. But, but I think that first step is really to ensure that there's this consistency of of understanding what what's going on because it is that sort of lack of transparency. You know, we 
uh, we did some freedom of information requests on a particular type of stop and search, which is called Section 60 stop and searches, where it's a suspicionless search. So a police officer doesn't even have to have reasonable grounds to believe you've committed an offence. They can stop and search anybody within a particular area for, for a length of time. Um, without, and we know that those are the most disproportionately used. So normally, regular stop and searches, we know that there's around a nine times more likely to, to be stopped and searched. Under these powers, you're 18 times more likely to be stopped and searched if you're from a black and minority ethnic background, you know, because you've taken away the, you know, um, having to have some sort of reasonable ground to stop and search somebody. So the biases are, you know, even more likely to, to come into play um, with those. And so we just did all these freedom of information requests. And just that even things like age, so, you know, not capturing sort of under 18s like children and adults, because some of them had ranges that were from 17 to 19 or and you're kind of like, well, you know, you can't the basics of even on just understanding how are these powers being used, you know, on children compared to adults wasn't clear because everybody judged. And some uh, in terms of ethnicity had um officer perceived ethnicity some had self-reported ethnicity some used both so you know sort of even around ethnicity that was you know different people recorded it in different ways and so there's a real sort of need to just get that clarity of of understanding before you could you know and then that yeah that's the basic <laughs> building yeah, block really of being able to scrutinize <laughs> What's going on in my mind that we need to keep reminding ourselves is that policy and legislation is made and shaped on these statistics. So if the statistics aren't taking into account ethnic minorities and gender and anything else that we might want to talk about, well, then our policies and our legislations are not going to account for those groups, which is exactly what they should be doing. And, and actually, they're legally required to do that because we have the Equality Act, we have the public sector equality duty, um, which requires public bodies to ensure that their policies don't discriminate and that they foster good relations. And so actually, what we find is, is that, um, you know, and this is a broader piece of work that we're doing as we're sort of doing this work around equalities, what we're trying to, you know, we're looking at it through this lens of the public sector equality duty and often what will happen is, is that you'll have a piece of policy and you'll have what's called an equality impact assessment because the Equality Act says you have to have due regard to the like, you know, whether or not your policy is going to discriminate against particular groups with a protected characteristic. But there's so many problems with these equality impact assessments because so often, unfortunately, they're seen as Again, another tick box to do. We've got, we'll design the policy, we'll come up with the plan of implementing it, and then we'll do the equality impact assessment at the end. And the data that we have isn't full, so we don't fully understand, or we may identify that there's going to be some indirect discrimination. But essentially, it's, it's too far down the line. The policy has already been come up with, and it doesn't actually then often result in any kind of change to that decision if it's going to, to to be discriminatory so we've seen this in this the public the um police crime sentencing and courts bill that's going through parliament at the moment um and we pushed them to publish their call it the full equality impact assessments rather than just an equality statement and actually talking about intersectionality there's no space on there where they so they look at race and then they look at gender but they don't, for some of these policies, look at the intersection of race and gender. So take, for example, one element of this bill is going to increase um, 
potential of maximum uh, of sentences around repeat offending for drug importation, for example. So we know that that's more likely to impact black age minority ethnic women. And yet nowhere in the equality impact assessment has it talked about the fact that that intersection of race and gender will have a disproportionate impact. And that the fact that you're taking away the ability of the judge to look at the the individual circumstances of the case by saying these are automatic sentences that the, the judge then doesn't have the ability to look at the oh, is that right? Because case. it's an automatic sentence, it removes the ability for the judge to what? To question and want to understand the mitigating well, circumstances? Yeah, so normally when you're sentencing, the judge will be able to take into account the particular circumstances of the case, so whether someone was coerced or whether there was other, you know, they've been a victim of crime. Yeah, because if someone yeah. says, I'm going to shoot your children unless you take this cocaine to another country, well, of course, the chances are you're probably going to say, well, I don't want my children murdered, so... I don't feel I have much choice. Let me give this a go. So, yeah, so, so essentially these sort of sentences, you know, take that discretion away from, from the judge to be able to look at those individual circumstances. And where we know that there are offences that, um, you know, like this, for example, that are more likely to impact a particular group, but that wasn't even mentioned in the equality impact assessment, um, despite us, you know, knowing that this is the case. And so I think there's a real piece of work to be done on improving how these are done, when they're done, so they should be being done at the beginning in the kind of design yeah. phase, they should be where potential discrimination or indirect discrimination is identified, there should be very clear either mitigation against that or you don't implement the policy. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the person who wrote the equality uh, impact assessments needs to understand a bit more about equality to be honest. Well, I, well, actually, I mean, interesting you say that because looking at the different equality impact assessments uh, for this bill, which is a huge bill, so there's lots of different ones, and obviously different bits have been written by different people, there's clearly a different understanding of people of what even indirect discrimination is within them. So, so I think there is a real fundamental piece of work to be done about this sort of, and it comes back to the training point we were talking about earlier, it's not just people on the front line, it's, you know, sort of civil servants, people implementing policies, designing these as to, um, you know, what indirect discrimination is, how to do these properly. And and the other thing is around how are we utilising the people with expertise in this? So actually these equality impact assessments should be being co-produced with people from these communities. Yeah, they should be going out and speaking to these fantastic organisations who represent communities who've got all this expertise. Involve them at the early stages. So we're with this is what we're thinking about. You know, um, we've got this sort of data, but what do you think about this and what do you think will be some of the impacts um, of this on your particular communities and how might we mitigate that? Or actually, is there no way of mitigating it and therefore we shouldn't go forward with that policy? And do you think the reason that that isn't done is often because it's sort of everything's quite rushed and everything needs to be done like immediately? Or is it kind of like, oh, that's going to cost a bit of money to get you know, the people who are experienced these things to talk? Because, I mean, often people will give up free time. I'm not saying that's always appropriate. Um, but it doesn't seem like the hardest thing to do. I mean, you know, we'll happily pummel money into Mars rovers and rockets and building new prisons. And you sort of think, well, sure, just a little bit of small change for a bit of training and maybe a few focus groups and... <laughs> no, yeah, that drives me insane. I think if you're serious about issues like, you know, tackling race equality, which, you know, there is a race, you know, 
clearly you know MOJ and HMPPS are it's clearly high on their agenda or something they want but it's there is you know this does come at a cost you know there is um you know needs to be that sort of budget line around you know kind of quality training co-production engagement with communities it it does take some time and an investment but actually it's then about looking at the the long term of this that's how we're going to you know be able to tackle the things that David Lammy talked about in his review is through you know through actually sort of thinking these through um and and putting that investment of time and resources in at this early stage to prevent things later on i mean we know for example that black age minority ethnic people are um overrepresented in prisons and actually there's a really interesting stat that prison reform trust have got that if prisons were representative of the ethnic makeup of our country we'd actually have 9000 fewer people in in prison which is equivalent to 12 prisons you know you're kind of like you know you start thinking about it in that sense and it's kind of like actually you know if you're thinking economically you know and what you would save you know um just on a purely economic basis you know this is what we're talking about here actually kind of implementing these things which are going to then not only save money later on but actually prevent that kind of intergenerational trauma you know and all those sort of other you know um things that we know filter through different generations exactly and i think you know any of us who work in the area of prison reform or the reform of the criminal justice system it's not like we're just trying to be a pain in the neck it's like no we also want to save money we'd also like to put ourselves out of a job so we could go and do something else you know it's in everybody's benefit and actually there are some really tangible things that could be done it's just that often not done. You know, the Lamy Review, I can't remember what year the Lamy Review was. I should remember, but I can't. 2017? Right. And we're now 2021. And I sort of fear, it's a bit like the Corston Report that was, I think, 2011. Um, And we're now 2021. And it's just like going around circles. And it's just like another report comes along. It says the same thing in sort of maybe slightly more contemporary language than the last one. Yet there's an absolute reluctance to to move in any type of sort of national way. You talk about the pockets of good practice, which is great, but that's not going to help us move the dial, is it? Absolutely. And and that's why we're doing this whole piece of work around this bill and really shine it. And so actually we've been working as, you know, it's really fantastic. We're working with this almost like an alliance of alliances on this because this is an issue that actually, you know, the different alliances that work in the criminal justice sector. So you've got um, the Alliance for Youth Justice, you've got Agenda that obviously work around women and girls, uh, Clinks, who support the voluntary sector. You've got Equal, who look at issues around race disparity, the Transition to Adulthood Alliance, that are looking at young adults. You know, and we kind of realised coming together that actually this bill um, it was going to have so many different impacts in terms of race equality, whether it's around policing or sentencing. And we just wanted to shine a spotlight on it. And we didn't feel that the equality impact assessments um, were fit for purpose. We didn't feel like, you know, due regard had been given and and that these policies were just being put through without um, regard to that. Um, and so that's why we've been trying to kind of shine a, a spotlight on it through letters to the Prime Minister, through petitions, through social media campaigns, through I gave evidence to the Bill Committee. We've been working both kind of, you know, with parliamentarians, with the House of Lords, with others um, on the policy side, but also working and explaining to you know, community organisations what's happening as well, because I think it's, you know, we just need to shine a spotlight. And I'm I'm sure that those um, those sort of clauses will go through, but we still need to be holding to account, shining a spotlight on and saying this is a legal requirement to have due regard to this for good reason, 
um, and we're going to kind of continue to talk about this. But but just coming to back to that point about co-production and time, we had a, an event yesterday that was brilliant. So as you'll know, they've just had the police and crime commissioner elections because not all power around this is at the top is 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 within you know within Ministry of Justice or the Home Office. We've actually got kind of these elected um, you know police and crime commissioners who have more and more sort of influence. Um, so they obviously have access to money to commission services, but they also have the opportunity, just as being that person with oversight, to convene and bring people together, to hold the police to account, to look at the bigger picture in their region. And interestingly, the Young Review, which was the review that happened before David Lammy's review, did um, an audit of police and crime plans that PCCs put together. The last time that there was... Uh, after the last election, um, and very few actually mentioned race equality. Very few um, I had really kind of looked at in terms of ethnicities their population. Um, and so we held an event yesterday where we invited officers of police and crime commissioners. We invited community organisations to come together um, to talk about as you're just in this phase now developing this police and crime plans. Don't rush into it. Take the time to go and speak to that brilliant Bangladeshi women's organisation that's in your, you know, in the, your community who's doing some fantastic work, probably with, you know, uh, you know, victims of crime or other people in your community to understand their bit. Go and speak to the people that you wouldn't normally speak to. Understand all the different communities um, in the developing and design of your police and crime plan. Um, in order before you start then commissioning out services, really kind of understand uh, the need in your area and how you build trust and confidence and tackle racial inequality in your in your area. Um, and we had a speaker from Mopac talk, and she sort of said they've been doing a piece of work around an action plan for London around building trust and confidence in policing, and they spoke, I think, to over sort of five hundred community organisations um, and individuals in the developing of this plan. And this isn't easy work. Like, you know, we weren't trying to pretend, you know, this is this is hard. You know, it, it takes time. It does take needing to do that outreach. These groups aren't hard to reach. I really hate that term because it's actually about, well, they're there. Go to the spaces where they are and ask the questions. Um, because actually, when you co-produce something, when if that police and crime plan has genuinely listened actively and not been defensive and actually gone and listened to what is the impact of you know, high levels of stop and search in this area? What is the impact of, you know, closing down of youth services in a certain area? What What is the impact of these different things? Then you're going to make a much more effective plan that's going to have the outcomes that all police crime and commissioners want, which is safer communities and reducing crime um, for, for everybody, you know, not just for certain pockets of, of that community. Out of interest, when the police and crime commissioners have to write their plans, is there a template? Because it sounds to me like if there was a template that sort of said, well, we need a section on women, we need a section on the different cultures and backgrounds that are representative of your county, because, of course, that might all look different in, in different counties, of course. Would that be a useful tool to make sure that those particular things aren't overlooked? Or is there not a template as far as you know? There's not a template as such, because I think, you know, each police and crime commissioner is, you know, has that sort of independence. What there is, and we work trying work quite closely with the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners um, to 
um, also, you know, they they support us and they promote our event yesterday, for example, and we kind of work quite closely with them. And I know that they're doing a lot of work with these newly elected PCCs in terms of their induction on different elements. And I know that that race disparity this time around has been something that in particular they've also sort of done sessions on to get people thinking about. So hopefully we will see if a similar sort of audit is done on these police and crime plans, you know, sort of next year, um, a big difference between the ones that were, were done last time and, and the ones that were done this time. But um, but yeah, it's all about kind of making it, you know, yesterday in a sense, we weren't saying this is what should be in your plan. It was more about the how you go about it. How do you, you know, we had people from, we had three young adults from Leaders Unlocked, who are one of our member organisations, who've been working as part of youth commissions with some PCC areas to have conversations and to to ensure that PCCs understand what young people and young adults needs are in their areas as well and sort of having those um, discussions and they were doing some brilliant work around what race you know race disparity meant for them um, their experiences one of the lads that spoke on the meeting yesterday talked about his own experience of experiencing racism and, and racist behavior and hate crime you know the impact that that's had on him and his family um, and, you know but he was then able to through his role on this youth commission to help influence what the police and crime commissioner was then doing about hate crime for particularly young people that might not make complaints or might not go to the police or might not um, come forward because of lack of trust and confidence um, and other issues. How can we meet the needs of that group that are being missed out? That's absolutely brilliant. I mean, it sounds like whilst there's quite a lot of work to still do, that there are certainly sort of green shoots of hope and optimism. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think uh, there, there has been a real shot, you know, spotlight shone on this. And, and we've been trying to do that CGA and working just collaboratively with our members and with other alliances to just continue to sort of shine this, this spotlight on this issue. Um, and there are, you know, people out there that are trying to do good. And, and if we can help identify where that's going on and if we can help to look at mechanisms for not just having it as that little pocket of good practice but actually something that that um you know appears more broadly then that's that's what we intend to do that's our our role really great well thank you so much i mean we could carry on talking forever we haven't covered your work on restorative justice or responsible journalism and getting that narrative right which are two huge topics so we certainly didn't have time to cover it today in the pod but maybe maybe another time as your work progresses but thank you so much for coming on the pod and talking to me no thanks so much and yeah i'm delighted to come back and, and talk about those other aspects later on links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below if you enjoyed listening we would love it if you would subscribe also rate review and best of all share this episode justice is produced for one small thing by the london podcast company If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. 
Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.